You're listening to the audio-only version of the Moe Gamer podcast. Don't forget you can watch a video version of this episode over on YouTube. Check moegamer.net for a link to the channel. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome once again to the Moe Gamer podcast. Chris is back with me today so you don't have to listen to me rambling on for half an hour about porn on Steam. Um, <laughs> so, hey Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, how's everybody out there today? Ah, not too bad. I'm very hot again. Summer, it seems, has arrived here, which has uh, made life very, very sweaty indeed. Yeah, I don't know how it is for you guys in the UK, but it seems like spring is just a thing that doesn't exist anymore. I was thinking that the other day. It's it's just we seem to go from freezing cold and wet to roasting sunshine and nothing in between. And sometimes both on the same day at the moment, so that's always fun. Anyway... So, uh, today we're getting back to our usual format, since we're both here to talk about things. First of all, we're going to talk a little bit about the news, then we'll move on to talking about what we've been playing recently, and then finally, we will move on to our main topic for the episode, which today we're going to be talking a little bit about game preservation and uh, historical compilations and that sort of thing. Uh, Before we dive too deeply into the news, I just want to give a bit of an update on uh, the situation I talked a bit about in the last episode with the Steam Visual Novel VN Apocalypse, Waifu Holocaust, or whatever you want to call it people getting very pissy about the various things that people are calling it but you know um the important thing is the situation so um it's it's i wouldn't say it's completely resolved as yet but most of the developers who got contacted uh in that whole flurry of um threats to get their content taken down unless they edit it most of them have been contacted by valve to say that they're products are going to be re-reviewed and that the original message was probably sent in error which suggests to me that uh one of the theories going around that it was just someone mass reporting anything with sort of vaguely anime art style graphics was probably the most accurate one um but no one has sort of had any sort of definitive yes this is fine from valve as yet uh, but also no one has had any stuff taken down either. So that's good news. The other good news that's come out of that is the fact that lots of other stores and publishers and companies have stepped up to the plate to try and compete with Steam uh, in this sort of space. Up until now, your two real choices for visual novels have been going to Steam for all ages versions or going direct to the publishers for um, adults-only versions where they exist. Uh, and there's been a few other sites like Nutaku and uh, Denposoft and a few other places around that specialise particularly in the adults-only side of things. Uh, but as a result of this Steam business, GOG.com has stepped up and started publishing uh, visual novels from companies like Sekai Project and Manga Gamer. Those are the all-ages versions again. Uh, most importantly, um, for on that GOG um, situation is that GOG have said they have absolutely no issue whatsoever with publishers offering uh, uncensoring patches so uh, those companies that release a cut all ages version on a platform like GOG and then provide a free content patch or in some cases a paid content patch to add in the adult content again GOG are absolutely fine with that whereas Steam have been a bit funny about that in the past so uh, that's good so I've also recently discovered an itch Yes, yes. And, and, and I noticed that Itch had straight up has, when I was configuring my settings, I just signed up for it yesterday. Um, they specifically had to do you want adult content to appear in your regular feed, yes or no. So I believe they straight up will distribute adult content 
That's good. Yeah, I know. I know. Itch is very popular with uh, Western indie developers in particular. So, and it seems that they're really trying to grow now that there's been this controversy over Steam. I think they're trying to put together a, a full-on client as well. Uh, so, a client piece of software like Steam, so you don't just do everything through their website. So, yeah, that's going to be interesting to see where things go. GOG's already got a client. Um, I think uh, Nutaku and Manga Gamer are both working on something as well. Around the same time as uh, this whole situation hit, Manga Gamer suggested in a press release that they're currently working on something but didn't really say what uh, whether that's their partnership with GOG or something more than that remains to be seen but uh, either way it's uh, better news than it was last time so um, alright so that's uh, that's all that so let's jump into the news stories you've picked out for us today then yes uh, so I will get the thing that enthuses me most out of the way first which is we finally have a solid release date for Mega Man 11 yes um, now I have in recent history made a distinct uh, effort to cut myself out of social networking because I'm tired of the noise so I don't know whether people are excited about Mega Man 11 or not or whether or not people who don't understand making video games have a problem with the art style or not but I think it looks great I'm also very happy to see that um, they are introducing a new mechanic to the game what they are calling the double gear system which um, seems to be a system where you can either slow down time or power yourself up to do extra damage um, with like a, a bar that recharges and if you don't watch the bar you can overheat so there's a whole new wrinkle in the Mega Man mechanics which is very very exciting um, I mean not a whole heck of a lot else besides uh, it's Mega Man 3D graphics on a 2D plane um, and October early October October 2nd is now the solid release date um, if you are looking at the Switch version, which I know I am, there is going to be a special edition box set that is to celebrate Mega Man's 30th anniversary that's coming with a very handsome uh, Mega Man 30th anniversary amiibo with like a little silver medal on the base. Um, I don't have any amiibo. That may finally be the first amiibo I get because it's a really <laughs> nice dynamic action pose, and I'm a sucker for anything remotely Mega Man related. Yeah, great. Yeah, this this looks pretty great. Uh, to be honest, I haven't seen a whole lot of discussion about it on social media. I don't know if that's just the people I follow or if there hasn't really been a lot of discussion of it. The trailer seemed to sort of slip out quite quietly, if anything. Uh, I saw a few people discussing it on Discord, but um, I haven't seen a lot about it on Twitter. So there certainly hasn't been any sort of big negative response or anything like that. So, that's good, uh, yeah. Which is good. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my first impressions of it were very good. Um, it reminded me quite a bit of what Mighty Number no. Nine was supposed to look like. Yes, yeah, very much so. <laughs> I thought the same thing. Yeah, so if if you remember the the original concept screenshot for uh, Mighty Number no. Nine, which the the final game didn't end up looking like, uh, which which is fine if you've read my coverage on it, you know that Mighty Number no. Nine is actually a lot better game than people give it credit for. But uh, the whole Kickstarter thing tended to overshadow the actual quality of the game. Um, but yeah, this this looks really nice. The the trailer's got some uh, some nice teasers in it. It's got some really nice big bosses in it. The animation looks great. There's this sort of nice cell shading thing going on with the graphics. Yeah, it, the the art style looks very sort of true to um, sort of the 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 2D non game depictions of Mega Man we've had. Things like box art and stuff like that. It looks very true to that, which is nice. 
Yeah, the thing I'm most excited about, you know, as a as an art guy and a visual presentation guy is, um, and this was something that was revealed way back when the first, when the game was first teased months ago. But I love now that apparently when you switch the weapons, it's not just a color change. There's actual subtle changes to Mega Man's overall appearance. So yeah, like the, cool. the, the, the one they keep showing is like the like whatever like Brick Man or whatever the bad guy's gonna end up being like when you use his ability like Mega Man's helmet takes on that like a crisscross brick pattern and like the Buster has it like, looks like it's like a cylinder of bricks instead of the regular Buster so I'm really That's excited cool. to see like the other like subtle transformations um, which is really something like that is very difficult to achieve with 2D because you have to redraw the entire sprite over and over yeah. so basically it's just skins now that it's a 3D engine so really cool I'm very excited to see like the eight different little transformations. Yeah, looking forward to this. I mean, uh, ever since I, I, I spent that month covering uh, Inti Create games, uh, obviously they're not quite the same as, as Mega Man, but there's a lot of inspiration in there for obvious reasons. Um, yeah, I've, I've become very interested in, in what Mega Man's doing, and at some point I will go back and investigate the series as a whole. So, But it's uh, it's good to see that it's still moving on, and it's also good, I think, that they're, they're not getting too hung up on the NES thing as well. Because, I mean, that was cool, but it's it's also nice to see them trying something a bit more modern with it as well. So Yeah, yeah I'm very excited that they're kind of making a modern... Mega Man game that is happens to be 2D. Yeah. And taking it in directions with presentation and mechanics that would only be possible with modern engines, but still very much keeping it close. It's kind of what, what I've always hoped for from a new Mega Man title, so hopefully yeah. it doesn't disappoint in October. Good stuff. Fingers crossed for that. Then. Okay then, uh, next up we have a story uh, about uh, a new Sonic racing game coming this winter. So it's called Team Sonic Racing. Uh, so they appear to have dropped the Sega All Stars bit from the title, which is which was one of the most appealing elements of the the previous versions for many people. Um, so it sounds like most of this game is going to be involving the Sonic universe rather than the sort of extended Sega universe. Um, but yeah, yeah. What, what do you think of this? Well, uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited. Um... Most importantly, is it Sumo Digital's making it again? Um, yes, which is the developer who made not only the last two Sonic Racing games, which were fantastic, but also they did the modern outruns for yes. for Sega, um, and their their racing output in general has been solid for many many years. Well, um, aside from that as well, they also worked on or members of that team anyway. You used to be involved with uh, Bizarre Creations as well, yes, so a yep. lot of them worked on things like uh, Project Gotham Racing and Blur, which is a fantastic game that no one played um <laughs> but yeah yeah they've got a great pedigree there so that's that's one thing that i'm very excited about yeah i mean and as far as uh, i was slightly disappointed to see the sega all-stars uh element dropped but i'm not one of those people that like hates on sonic so like i like all of sonic's like different friends and stuff so i'm yeah. actually hoping they take this opportunity to bring some of the other weird guys back like yes the, like the alligator whose name i don't remember or like like they just reintroduced Mighty Arma Mighty the Armadillo for Sonic Mania Plus, so maybe he's gonna be in it. I don't know, Charmy the Bee. There's like all kinds of cool weird Sonic characters that we don't get to see. Um, and if ditching the weird All Stars aspect means I don't have to look at weird Uncanny Valley Danica Patrick anymore, like I'm also, <laughs> I'm also super okay with that because I did not enjoy that in the previous game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was just that was just weird. That was. There was kind of an era of a few games doing that, and it was around sort of the same time that we had the Mercedes sponsorship in Mario Kart as well. Yeah. Wasn't it? It was mm -hmm. like, it was like well, what, what are you doing? Stop it! 
but yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to this um the last couple of sonic racing games have been fantastic i spent a lot of time with sonic racing transformed in particular that's a really nice game great music excellent single player mode it absolutely craps all over america mm-hmm. in terms of single player um multiplayer i've struggled to get people to enthuse about it as much as mario kart but to be honest that's not a huge problem because the single player offering is so substantial and in this case it sounds like it's going to be even more substantial they're talking about sort of adventure mode which brings to mind images of things like diddy kong racing on the n64 which is something i really like the approach they took in that so if they do something along those lines yeah this is going to be a really interesting game i think yeah yeah i'm very excited you'll certainly have at least one person to play it online with excellent all right, what you got next for us? What do I got next? Do we want to talk about Pokemon? I guess we got to talk about Pokemon. Uh, well, let's talk about Pokemon. All right, so uh, uh, let's go Pikachu and let's go Eevee arriving November 16th, 2018. Um, really, really interesting stuff here. Um, what the two Let's Go titles appear to be is a modern recreation in a lot of ways of the original Pokemon Yellow. So we're going back to the original Pokemon region, but they're not quite like standard Pokemon RPGs in a traditional sense. They're actually combining the functionality of Pokemon Go with the console game. Um, Mm. What a lot of people are theorizing is that this is meant to be kind of a bridge the gap kind of title to start getting people who kind of came on board with Pokemon thanks to Pokemon Go uh, used to the idea of more traditional Pokemon games. It's, it's kind of a hybrid of the two approaches. Uh, so it doesn't control traditionally. Um, when you actually play the game on your Switch, you've got to use the motion controls to throw the Pokeball. Um, so it's kind of got some modern, modern stuff from Pokemon Go melded with a more traditional Pokemon experience. It does have what appear to be more traditional Pokemon battle sequences in the game. Um, there's also some cross-ability with the actual Pokemon Go cell phone game. Um, when you reach a certain point in the Let's Go games, you'll actually be able to pull your Pokemon from Pokemon Go into your Switch game. Um, so that's kind of cool. Uh, there's also going to be a really neat Pokeball accessory um, with a little button in the middle of the Pokeball is actually a full analog. So you can use that as a controller when you play the Let's Go game. It'll sync up with your Switch. Um, and then you can actually load your Pokemon from your game into the ball and then take them with you, like those old Let's Go Pikachu accessories. Yeah. Um, so it's just really, really interesting stuff. Um, as kind of a core Pokemon guy, like I have no interest in playing it, but from a design, pure design perspective, it's really cool to see them kind of reaching out, trying to touch other audiences whose familiarity with Pokemon may come from other places besides the core RPGs. Yeah, I think it's good, and uh, yeah, I think it's good they're trying to sort of spread things out with Pokemon a bit because they've they've just released that free to play Pokemon Quest thing as well on yes, Switch. I haven't got a chance um, to check that out, but it, no, I like I, the art I, style. Yeah, I haven't tried it yet either, but uh, people seem to be enjoying it. And uh, and this, as you say, is a sort of bridge the gap effort, which uh, which I think is a really good idea. Um, it's it's got uh, I believe it's got cooperative play in it as well, hasn't it? So like two yes. people mm-hmm. can join battles at the same time. Yeah, on the same screen, so like like couch yeah. co-op. 
yeah so so that's going to be great for for example parents to play with their kids and stuff um which which will be good so it's, it's sort of bringing in that traditional nintendo philosophy of getting people together to play stuff and enjoy things and software toys and that sort of thing so um yeah i mean i, I you, you know me i've i've never been hugely into pokemon but I, I find the concept of this quite interesting and I, I follow quite a few people who are into pokemon and they seem pretty excited about this so uh, especially the eevee one yes that's really cool and like for those of you who like are huge into like pokemon lore right like it's cool that it's Pikachu or Eevee because, like, traditionally in like the comics and stuff, um, like the rival care, like the the hero has Pikachu, but the rival yeah. the rival has Eevee. So if if you actually think of it, depending on which copy you buy, you're actually choosing to be the hero character or the rival character. Oh, that's cool. I didn't which is which is kind of that. an interesting twist. Um, also, of course, part of part of all the news that was announced for po- Let's Go is that there is another core RPG coming. Yes. Uh, so we don't know anything about it. We haven't even technically announced platforms, but they have said that um, uh, mobility and on the go is going to be an important part of that game's design philosophy. So it's got some people theorizing whether or not it is going to be on Switch or still be on the 3DS or, or what the heck is going on. Hmm. Hard to say at this point, really, because I mean, obviously, 3DS is starting to wind down a bit, but Nintendo does seem pretty committed to continuing to support it for at least another year or two. But at the same time, the Switch has got plenty of portability in its own right as well. So, sure, yeah, it's kind of hard to say at this point. But uh, yeah, anyone who's uh, whinged about this can just wait until next year and see what's going on there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so next up, we've got news that uh, Yakuza three, four, and five are all getting remastered versions on PlayStation four, um, and moreover these remastered versions apparently exist specifically because of the western audience for the game which has made a lot of people very happy because um yakuza was previously thought of as something that sega in the west didn't really care about all that much so it was always a really nice surprise when they finally got released and there was always a bit of cynicism about when a new one was announced in japan it's like oh we're never gonna get that one although we've got all of them now so you know <laughs> shut up <laughs> um but yeah this this is really great news because uh yakuza 3 4 and 5 are all really great games um Yakuza 5, I, I can't remember the situation in America, but certainly in Europe it never got a physical release. Uh, so it's going to be really nice to be able to have a, a, an actual copy of that on my shelf. I've got 3, 4 and, and Dead Souls here on PS3, but at, at the very least I will pick up a, a disc-based copy of uh, Yakuza 5 PS4. The um, it, it sounds like they're not going to be uh, sort of full-on uh, Kiwami-style remakes of them, but rather uh, remasters with a few enhancements. So they're going to be running at full 1080p resolution. They're going to be 60 frames a second. They're going to have a bit of extra content. They're going to have a few things tweaked here and there to sort of apparently be more more in line with the moral values of modern Japan or something like that, which has made, made, a, few people, made a few people raise their eyebrows a bit. But... Um, yeah, so I'm very much looking forward to those. Uh, Yakuza is a series that I've enjoyed a great deal since the PS2 era, even with that awful dub of the first one. Um, honestly, you've never heard the word motherfucker so many times in one game. <laughs> uh, I, I, I hate when games like try to be edgy by just inserting curse words into the dialogue. It's, it's, it's insane, because like, you, you play the Japanese versions of Yakuza, and every, everyone's like sort of really polite and respectful to one another, and then the first one on PS2 is just like, fuck, 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 shit, fuck you. And it's like... Mm. Yeah, you know they're not actually... T- <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but anyway, yeah, so um, I'm looking forward to playing through all of those. I've, I've actually only beaten up to Yakuza 3 so far to date, just by owning the other ones. I've, I never got around to the later ones yet, so this seems like an ideal opportunity to, to jump on board, particularly with uh, how well-received Zero and the two Kiwamis have been so far. Sure. So. Yeah, I mean, my uh, my experience with the Yakuza games is is slim. Um, actually, my first one I've ever played was Ki was Kiwami. Um, I, I just kind of let them slip under the radar for a long, long time. Uh, but I'm, you know, as we'll talk about today later in the episode, in terms of historical preservation and whatnot, I'm just excited that even though I may not buy them all, it's just great that they're all unified on a modern platform and they're going to be readily available to everybody. I mean, that hurts no one, so it's great news. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, if it's if it's going to bring some new people into the series and help it grow and continue over time as well, that's that's great too. So, all right, great stuff. Um, what else you got for us? Anything? Uh, just two little things. Um, don't need to turn into huge conversations, but uh, I, I'm a huge Warhammer fan. Um, not a fan of the tabletop game necessarily because I just don't have the money and time for it. But I love the lore and I like to read the books and I like to keep in touch with whatever's going on in the Warhammer and Warhammer 40k universes. So I was really excited to see this week that um, they announced a new game set in the medieval Warhammer universe called Warhammer Chaos Bane, and uh, yep. it's going to be a Diablo-style action RPG set in the mm. Warhammer fantasy world, which is a first. There hasn't been like a good crack at an action RPG set in that setting yet. Um, well, that's really weird when you think about it, isn't it? Because... it yeah. There has been one set in the 40k universe, but for, from what I understand, it didn't turn out too good. Mm. Um, but this is a different developer, so I can't can't wait to get my hands on it. I just I love Warhammer, so there's not really a lot of details about it besides the developer, but uh, it's just, yeah. this is a French studio, mm. uh, uh, Echo it, Software, who made yeah. sur How to Survive one and two, which I never played myself, but they they were quite well received when they came out, from what I understand. Yeah, yeah, and no, I remember people saying positive things about them. So, yeah, this is going to be interesting. I think it's um, Games Workshop have been very, they've been uh, very, very liberal with the Warhammer license, farming it out to all sorts of different developers to do different things with. And I, mm -hmm. I think that's really good because there's there's so many different approaches you can take with it because you you can do a very strict adaptation of the tabletop rules for people who want that, but then there's sort of just using the lore and the units and the stories and so on. And some of them have been more successful than others. Some of them, different people react to in different ways. Like, for example, I did, I, I kind of respected what Vermintide was doing, but I didn't enjoy it all that much. But I, I, I've got friends who are obsessed with it uh, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, this is going to be a, a sort of another string to Warhammer's bow. So it's going to be good to see that, um, yeah, different different people who entered Warhammer for different reasons will be coming yeah. to. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm particularly excited about it because... Uh... I really love Warhammer, like I mentioned, but um, often it just so happens that whenever a new Warhammer or Warhammer 40k game comes out, it's always in a genre that I don't like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, even though I love Warhammer and, and games is a really good way for me to interact with that property, there's been very few Warhammer games that are actually games I want to play. So, like, a Diablo-style action RPG, hopefully with a focus on loot, like, that's my jam. So, like, I'm really excited for it. Yeah, sounds good to me. Uh, I also had another little game I just wanted to give a shout out to and point people in the direction of, uh, which is a title called Blackbird, which is going to be available for Switch and on Steam. 
Um, it is a title from Yoshiro Kimura, uh, who is known for kind of his super oddball games. Uh, Chulip on the PS2, which is a game about like kissing people. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and lately, uh, Million Onion Hotel um, was a game, a cell phone game he had made. He also made that game. Uh, I can't remember the title of it, but it was about like being a like a game developer and making your own games. Oh yeah, um, uh, was it Dandy Dungeon or something? Yeah, that's like it, that? Dandy yeah. Dungeon. And uh, and both Million Onion Hotel and Dandy Dungeon were really good takes on cell phone games, like really eminently playable, quirky, interesting games. Um, this Blackbird is kind of his take on a uh, horizontal shooter um, with kind of goofy, kind of weird, cartoony graphics, but with like a sepia tone, like very strange visual presentation. Uh, it appears to be kind of grim in that like the characters you shoot like the bodies don't go away they just like fall and like stay there in the stage <laughs> but but it has like a, like a cute pixel art fairy tale look to it but then it's also like gruesome so it's a classic chimera like kind of sarcastic but a weird presentation so i just wanted to make sure that was on people's radars mm. yeah op looks really nice as well it's a sort of combining that with pixel art is a, a really interesting look and then you've got these odd flashes of color with the colored balloons and stuff as well so yeah looks lovely all right, great stuff. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, I think, all the stuff we wanted to talk about from the news in the last couple of weeks. So we're going to take a short break now, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about what we've been playing for the last couple of weeks. So I'll see you in a minute. Welcome back. So for our second segment today, as usual, we're going to be talking a little bit about the things we've been playing for the last couple of weeks. And I think probably the first thing we both want to bring up is uh, is one Switch release that has proven rather popular among us, which is Hyrule Warriors Definitive Edition. So um, mm -hmm. first reactions, please, because I, I know you didn't play the Wii U version. Uh, where yes. I, I played that quite extensively, so I'm quite keen to hear your first reactions to it. Um, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I mean, as you said, I did not play the Wii U version or the DS version because I'm one of those guys that gets angry about DLC. So when the when the Wii U version was announced and it was like, oh, DLC pack's coming, I was like, I just won't buy this game. I'll wait till there's a definitive edition. <laughs> so now, so now there is a definitive edition, right? With every character from both versions, every adventure map from both versions. Like, it's been a long time since I can name a game. It's this packed with content. Like, you could just buy this game and play this game, like, all year. And, like, not buy another game. It's, like, yeah. crazy how much stuff there is. Yeah, it's it's insane. There is so much to do. Um, I absolutely love this game. I loved it on the Wii U. It's one of my favorite games on the Wii U. And I was a little worried about getting on the on the Switch, worried about uh, sort of it being too similar. But having not played the 3DS version... Um, there is definitely enough in this new version to warrant a another purchase, even if you engage quite heavily with the Wii U version, because it's got all of the sort of gameplay enhancements from the 3DS version, like being able to switch characters mid-battle. It's got the additional stories for some of the characters, like Linkle um, and Sia. Uh, it's got uh, things like being able to command your troops around the place. It's got all these additional adventure maps, as you say. So, yeah, there's just, there's just so much stuff in this game. And 
what what I really like about it is that there's there's so many different ways to play as well. So if you just want to play it through and have a cool story, then there's there's the legend mode where you can follow the main story and fight bosses and all that sort of thing. And then there's all the challenge modes if you just want to carve your way through a, a horde of enemies in, against the time limit. And then there's this adventure mode, which is just a, a really fascinating approach to this sort of thing because it's got so many varied challenges in it, ranging from... Uh, answering quiz questions by defeating the right enemy to sort of clearing out a particular number of enemies uh, before a time expires or doing more traditional warrior style battles and so on so yeah i i absolutely love this game yeah it's it's, it's really good so far um one of the things i really like about it um coming coming as a guy who has had a fair share of experience with experiences with muso titles um and the different warriors games specifically i like to play more of the licensed Warriors games over, over like the traditional um, Sengoku Air China uh, mm. Musou games, where I play a lot of the licensed ones. Um, it is almost immediately apparent that this was developed by Team Ninja and not the standard Omega Force team that develops all the uh, usual Musou games because it's so much quicker and snappier and more responsive. Yeah. It, it really yeah. feels a lot more accessible and less plodding than other Musou games do. It's really refreshing to play. Yeah, there's, it's there's, almost arcadey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and so, it's sort of things like I mean, I I haven't really seriously played a, another Warriors game for quite a while. I played a bit of Dynasty Warriors Eight, I think. Whatever yeah, the, whatever the one before the one no one liked was, um, <laughs> and uh, I, I I can't remember whether there were things like things like the weak point gauge and stuff like that in uh, in those. Whereas whereas in this, there's there's just like a very strong focus on being flashy all the time and sort of doing ridiculous special moves and there's like there's like at least three different ways to do ridiculous cinematic special moves in this rather than just pressing the musu button and this uh, so you've you've got things like breaking enemies guards and you've got the magic attacks and you've got the um uh, the special move button and so on and each and every one of those characters handles very very distinctly and very differently as well which mm-hmm. is quite which is quite pleasing and e- even there's, i mean there's three different versions of link in there but they are all very different from each other so you've got the main sort of Hyrule Warriors Link, who is pretty generic in terms of how he handles. He sort of hacks and slashes and does that sort of thing. Um, and then you've got Child Link from Majora's Mask, who has the ability to transform using the Fierce Deity Mask from that, which means he can sort of turn into a very powerful form of himself for limited periods of time. Uh, and then you've got Toon Link from Wind Waker as well, who is um, kind of rubbish at what he does but in a charming way so like anytime he does a sort of special attack or a spin attack he gets really dizzy and tired and stuff so you have to take that into account when he's uh, when you're doing those moves with him um and then beyond that you've got really weird characters like Wizro who kind of handles like a bullet hell character and you've got range characters you've, you've got characters who are really quick you've got characters who are sort of slow plodding heavy hitters and so on so yeah there's a a ton of variety and the game encourages you to try them out both through the story mode and through the adventure mode as well wizard kind of reminds me of what it might be like to control emil if there was a near warrior <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely definitely he, he, he takes a bit of getting used to but uh yeah and, and one thing i really like is the 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 progression kind of uh encourages you to experiment a bit with the characters as you unlock new combos with them and You'll often find completely by accident that there are certain 
combos and abilities that you can use that will be massively effective against enemies that might be giving you a bit of grief like for example when i first started playing i didn't really rate sheik as a character for for anything other than sort of being quick and hacking away at things but uh, just one of the adventure mode missions i did the other night is uh, is one that keeps throwing manhandler bosses at you repeatedly um and manhandler is weak against fire attacks and sheik conveniently has a combo that infuses her next strong attack with fire it absolutely devastates manhandlers and that was that was such a pleasure to discover that sort of thing and it's far from the first thing that i discovered in that way while playing the game and uh, i doubt it's uh, going to be the last one either this game's very good at something that i think all the muso games are good at that people tend to ignore which is that anyone can pick them up and hack and slash away but then there are rich mechanics to discover like the more time you want to spend with it the more it rewards you for that time yes definitely so i mean going through the the main story you probably get a couple of characters up into the sort of level 30 level 40 or so on the level cap on this game is 255 <laughs> and then some to scale level stuff yeah so yeah you've got that level of grinding of experience um there's a nice mechanic where you can expend your rupees to level up lower level characters to match your higher level ones um but then on top of that there's quite an extensive metagame in terms of collecting weapons and fusing them together to get skills and that sort of thing as well so the sort of eventual end game goal of the game if you like is to get everyone's ultimate weapon which is sort of their third tier weapon for each of the different weapon classes they can do with the optimum combination of skills on it so there are very extensive theory crafting guides on the internet of how to do that of how best to grind your way through that um but there's also a lot of sort of customizability in that so if you if, if you don't feel like that's a combination of skills that you're interested in having then yeah you can customize that by collecting weapons so there's a nice sort of loot aspect to the whole thing as well so mm -hmm. it's it, yeah it's it's got so much stuff that just appeals to such a broad range of players and it's a game i suspect is not going to get talked about very much unfortunately um but yeah everyone i know who has been playing it has been absolutely loving it so. Yeah, it's quite a good time. I don't love it in handheld mode. I think the screen is a bit cramped and the text yes. is a bit small. Yes, but, I'd agree um, with that. And it also doesn't perform quite as well in handheld mode as well. It's the first Switch game I've had where the handheld mode is noticeably lower frame rate than docked mode. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I mean, that's not a deal breaker or anything for me because in handheld mode it performs pretty much like the Wii U version did, but the with smaller text. Um, but yeah it's it's just really nice to have that game on the go uh, when i want it because the, the variety of the missions means that you don't have to spend half an hour to 45 minutes doing a full-on dynasty warrior style battle there's plenty of stuff in adventure mode that takes maybe five or ten minutes to do so sure all right so anything else to say on hyrule warriors Oh, I think you covered pretty much everything. It's just, it's been a long time since I encountered a game that was that much worth the price of admission oh, out, out of the gate. Definitely, yeah. I'm, I mean, that's going to be, that's going to be on the, sort of on a continuously ongoing game for me for quite some time, I think. I'm going to try and yeah. devote some time to it on my own game in the near future because, as I say, it's, it's a great game that's been well received, but with it being a Warriors game, it's not something that sort of the, mainstream press is particularly interested in because they all assume that warriors games are sitting around pressing the y button for 500 years um whereas yeah, I mean, we all I, know that's not quite true 
<laughs> yeah, well, I feel the original Wii U version got a really positive reception, even in the mainstream press, because people were actually surprised at a lot of the quality of life and like fun improvements that were made to it over standard Musou games. Yeah. Like, I remember reading articles about the original Wii U version from people who had previously been quite harsh on the Warriors games, liking it quite a bit, and, and how surprised they were that it was a quality game. So I just think people now aren't writing about the definitive version, because really definitive versions never get a lot of lip service. No, that's true. And I mean, which is sort of unfortunate, really, because the, the previous one, the, the, the Wii U version, as positive as a reception as it got, it was a Wii U game. So only certain people are going to be interested in reading about that in the first place, So because of the, that console's small install base so now it's on switch it seems like an ideal opportunity to sort of share the good word of it but uh, yeah as you say because it's a definitive edition because it's a re-release it's probably unlikely to get that treatment uh, unless you me of course so there we go more power to you <laughs> all right so what else you've been playing recently I've, i'm still kind of stuck in that weird place in my life it, it almost like feels post breakup like i still haven't recovered from finishing xenoblade 2 <laughs> so so i've just been like flitting from like game to game and like nothing's really been attaching to me um i guess over the past couple weeks what i've played the most is um besides hyrule warriors obviously um the switch version of battle chasers night war finally oh, yes. came out um i was a kickstarter backer for that um back in the day um for those of you who are unfamiliar, um, Joe Madura is a very talented comic book artist, one of my personal heroes, um, who was very well known in the 90s for his his specific... I mean, he did work for... You know, he's done work for DC and Marvel and stuff, but one of the things he's most known for is his, his personal comic, Battle Chasers, which takes place in um, what he calls an arcane punk setting. So it's it's got the hallmarks of steampunk, like there's machinery and stuff but it's all powered by magic instead of being powered by like steam and science um so you've got this really cool medieval world which is highly inspired by his respect for anime but um so there's magic and machinery and and just and his art style which is extremely distinct um but the battle chasers night war came about after the dissolving of vigil games which was madura's um development house that had made the first two darksiders games which are also hit by his design um and once that whole business happened with thq dissolving um vigil dispersed some of the vigil people went on to work for thq and are currently working on the new darksiders the other people from the vigil team went on to fund uh, found airship syndicate which is madura's new development team so they decided they were going to make a uh, a new rpg uh with mechanics that are designed specifically to pay tribute to like the classic 90s eras rpgs we all love uh, but set in the battle chasers comic universe um so it's really interesting the battle sequences are what you would kind of associate with classic final fantasy games characters stand in rows on left or right sides of the screen and just exchange turn-based blows um, but it does have a very distinctly Western sensibility as well. Um, dungeons um, randomly generate their layouts. There's a heavy focus on loot, which is color-coded in an MMO fashion. So, you know, there's green loot, blue loot, orange loot, all the way up to, like, white epic loot or whatever. It's, it's all... Uh, so there's a, a high Western sensibility paired with the JRPG-style combat sequences. It's a really interesting game, and I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Mm. Yeah, it, it sounds really interesting. As I, as I've spoken to you offline about this, I wasn't really familiar with 
battle chasers in generally, or, or the work of uh, the guy whose name I've forgotten already. Joe Majora. <laughs> yes. Um, but yes, it, it, I mean, I really saw, enjoyed the Darksiders games. They, those were very good. And so the, the, the sound of this game just does sound very interesting. As you say, this blend of East and West, so you sort of. JRPG style combat. I've seen things like uh, are there things like dialogue trees and stuff in in towns as well for quests and stuff like that. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, so so I mean, it, it seems like an interesting approach, and a lot of Western yeah. Western developed RPGs over the last years have, le- have left me a bit cold. But there have been a few that I've really liked that, and those have been the ones that have kind of combined different elements together. Mm-hmm. Like for, example, for example, a lot of people are, uh, are big on Divinity now because of the last couple of ones, Original Sin and so on, sure. that were really good. Um, I played the the original Divine Divinity back in the day when that first came out, and that was a really interesting blend of um, sort of Baldur's Gate style exploration and character interaction and stuff with uh, Diablo style action RPG combat, and that was okay. not something I'd I'd seen combined together before, but. It really can work. I, I think there's this sort of assumption that if you take one particular type of mechanic, then you need to sort of make the whole game fit that kind of mechanic as well. Whereas you can come up with some really interesting experiences if you kind of combine things together. And it sounds like this one's uh, done a, a really good job of this. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 a very 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 successful in doing what it wants to do. I mean, I do have some complaints about it. It's it's not a perfect game by any means. Um, one thing that I think will turn a lot of people off on it. Um, I don't have a problem with this. It's actually something I specifically like in games, but it has a very like plodding, deliberate pacing to it. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and that extends to like everything. Like the the combat is extremely slowly paced. Um, it, you know, it's not it's not action. It, it feels yeah. like it feels like an old game. Um, there's also like it's too in love with text. Um, <laughs> In, in, not in the way that I complain about like visual novels, but like, like if you are in combat, like you have so many different attacks, and like the description of what each attack does is like a small paragraph. Yeah. Like, do, like doing this creates this much mana recharge while dealing this much damage to this many enemies, and then creates a shield for this like this character. Like, like all the attacks are very complicated. So like it's a it's a heavily strategic game, and like every choice you make is a lot more deliberate than just like hammering on attack, which is something JRPGs yeah. sometimes get um, get a lot of flack for. So it, yeah. it's a very yeah. a very deliberate, very heavily strategic game. Well, that, that side of things is very typically Western, I think, and it sounds like it's taken quite a bit of inspiration from board games in some ways. Would that yes, be it, 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 fe- it feels like a, a tabletop game when you play it, actually, because um, the majority of the game actually takes place on the map screen. Right. So you you move around on the map screen from like location to location and like load up the dungeons and stuff. But like the main town is just on the map screen. Like you don't go into town. Like the buildings are just on the map. Right. I get you. Yeah. It, so it does it does feel like a tabletop game in a lot of ways actually yeah that that sounds pretty interesting i mean um a couple of episodes back i think i mentioned a, a game that me and some friends have been playing called gloomhaven mm-hmm. uh, which actually sounds very much like this uh in that it's it's a tabletop game in that uh you have uh, sort of a, a big overworld map that depicts where everything is and how far you'd have to travel to do things and so on and you do stuff in town but the stuff in town is all completely abstract it's all sort of uh driven through tables and dice rolls and card draws and stuff like that 
and then when you get into dungeons those are uh, generated through tiles and the specific scenarios to do uh, all of your attacks it, it, there are very few sort of basic attack actions in that you have this hand of cards that you use um, and most of those have some sort of uh, either requirement on how you can use them or range or area of effect or sort of this generates mana and you can then use that to do additional damage or whatever so yeah mm-hmm. it sounds it sounds very much uh, along that sort of thing so uh, i will have to tell my friends about this because they're really enjoying gloomhaven at the minute and it sounds like they'll probably get a kick out of this as well so. it's almost the exact same thing like you go it, you go to a dungeon based on you see the dungeon on the map you go to the dungeon you choose which difficulty level you want the dungeon to generate which then dictates the, the quality of the loot you will receive from completing it and then it randomly generates that dungeon out of a tile set okay that's cool yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely an interesting one then. So yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying it because I, I know you've been looking forward to this one for a while. Yeah, well, I I, re- I revere Joe Maduro with an almost religious, <laughs> religious <laughs> from an almost religious standpoint. Uh, his art is one of the greatest inspirations for me throughout most of my young adult life. So to be able to interact with his stuff in a game is always great. And I love the first two Dark Siders because of it, and I'm going to engage with the third one even though he's not doing the character design because i still know it's based off the world he created he's he's just one of my favorite artists cool all right um so uh i've been playing a few other things uh recently one of them is uh i've been getting back into the shantae series which i'm going to be covering this month on moe gamer so i'm not going to talk much about that now uh because there will be lots of articles about that coming up very soon uh, one thing i did want to talk about uh first which will probably be a very little interest to you but some of the people listening might be into it as well is uh the visual novel that i finished recently called uh Supipara, which i've is- heard of it yeah, uh, so this is a work published by Manga Gamer, uh, developed by a company called uh, Minori. And uh, Minori's sort of trademark is doing these beautifully presented uh, visual novels. So rather than doing the standard uh, sort of background with character sprites always facing the character on the screen, uh, Minori takes a very sort of almost animated movie approach to them. So oh. they're not they're not fully animated in the same way as something like the School Days game is, but um the the game makes use of lots of different camera angles uh it makes use of um a true first person perspective so sometimes you have characters standing in front of you and you'll see the back of their heads which is you don't realize how unusual that is until you you see it happening especially in an anime style game you very rarely see the back of an anime character's head but in this you see it all the time um and it's just so wonderfully presented it's it's a kinetic novel, so there's no choices or interactions or anything to make. It's just a just a straight line to the finish, straight through the story. But the the whole aesthetic of it is just so gorgeous. Um, it's it's all set in springtime, so the whole thing is sort of this uh, this sort of heavily bloomed sunlight is on everything. Uh, it's very very colourful. Um, it's got these very distinctive characters with sort of these very distinctive silhouettes and personalities and the the whole project um, the whole superpower project is quite an interesting one because the intention is for them to make five games in total um, they've, they've done two so far this one I've been playing recently is the second chapter I reviewed the first one um, a couple of years back uh, so the, the ultimate aim is for them to make five of these all together and then they they will all sort of tie together into a coherent story but they also um stand by themselves it's kind of a similar approach to a multi-route visual novel but there's 
Uh, there's also a, a supernatural aspect to it that I don't want to spoil too much for those who want to explore it in that it sort of implies that the rather than the roots being mutually exclusive to one another like they're in a normal visual novel they might be sort of all happening at the same time or that sort of thing so there's a really interesting angle to the story with that um and rather than taking the usual crowdfunding approach with this they are um basically just plowing all their profits from the currently available episodes of this and their other visual novel project called eden which is a, a sci-fi uh, visual novel that i haven't checked out but it's similarly beautifully presented um and yeah so the the remainder of the series happening is basically dependent on people picking up the first episodes um and its response to it has been very positive so far with good reason because it's it looks great it sounds great it's got good music it's got a fascinating story that combines sort of a bit of slice of life with supernatural witchcraft and that sort of thing and uh yeah so if you haven't checked that out and you're a visual novel fan i would very much encourage you to go and take a look at it uh it's on steam it's also available via manga gamer it's an all ages one so you don't have to worry about any content patches or um 18 plus scenes or anything like that you can just play it enjoy it it's lovely sounds like an address is one of my biggest uh things i don't care for in visual novels uh, they generally speaking i i find it hard to get past lower production but values so it's nice to hear that it's kind of got a unique presentation standard that's kind of different from the the norm yeah as i say that's very much minori's trademark from what i can make out they they haven't had a lot of stuff localized to the west but the the stuff they have done has always been very roundly praised for looking and sounding absolutely great so and this is certainly no exception to that so yeah definitely definitely high production values on this one all right so i mean you probably don't have a lot to say about that but uh um anything else you've been playing recently uh i mean like i guess like a bunch of stuff i've been flitting back and forth between games I've, I've kind of been getting back into pokemon again um yep. playing a little bit of pokemon sun not not too hardcore uh the only other thing i've been playing kind of semi-seriously is um i have the the ps4 version of dark souls 2 i've, I've got a bit of dark souls fever lately um okay. what, what with the remaster of the first one coming out and stuff uh, i haven't bought the remaster of the first one because i'm trying not to spend as much money but um so i've been playing two which um in typical fashion for you and i it's the one a lot of people don't like and i'm finding myself enjoying it quite a bit <laughs> but you know dark souls is dark souls so i don't know how much i can really talk about it that wouldn't cover ground that's been covered on every other media outlet ever um i just find the general atmosphere um you know great in the dark souls games and pretty much the same things everyone else loves about them i love about them the the minimalist non-intrusive storytelling um specifically in dark souls 2 um, i find it has a slightly different approach to atmosphere and scenery than uh, one and three do um i find it to be a bit sadder and less horror focused and less oppressive it's it's like a more yeah. depress it's a more depressing setting as appeared as composed to the other two which are more of a a fearful setting i don't know if i'm kind of mincing words but it just no, feels, I, I, I get what you mean. fundamentally different yeah um, no I, I i get what you mean i mean i i haven't played the soul series extensively i every time i've tried i've kind of bounced off them a bit but not not because i don't particularly like them but just because i, I tend to run into other things that i'd, I'd rather be playing at the time mm -hmm. so i i haven't found the right time for me to play a souls game yet um I, I will say that the of all the ones i've tried so far which are demon souls dark souls and dark souls 2 i think dark souls 2 is, is as you quite accurately say the one that i have actually enjoyed the most so far um 
Dark Souls 2 is actually quite an interesting one because it, it, it's one of those ones that sort of public opinion seems to go back and forth on it quite a bit. Yeah. So like, you, you, occasionally you'll see people slagging it off for all sorts of reasons, and then then you'll see see people going, "Oh, unpopular opinion. Dark Souls 2 is the best one." Um, so I I don't know really. It's it doesn't really matter at the end of the day, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are, there are people out there who like it. There are people out there who don't. I mean, you've got a whole series. If you don't dig Dark Souls two, then go play one of the other ones. Yeah, well, yeah. I just, <laughs> like I said, I, I'm just enjoying it because it feels a little different than the other ones. I like yeah. them all for different reasons. But one of the common theories is that um, Dark Souls two happens before one and three. Right. Um. So the uh, in one and three, kind of shit's already gone down. Mm-hmm. Like like everything's been destroyed. Everybody is already dead. Everything's at its darkest and worst because the world is about to end. Dark Souls two. There's very much a feeling that this is still going on. Right. So there's still greenery. There's still sunshine, and the result is that there's kind of a pervasive feeling of sadness as opposed to a pervasive feeling of loss. Mm. Like there's still something to cling to, and in Dark Souls 2, it kind of feels like you still might be able to preserve some of what's good about the world. Whereas in Dark Souls 1 and 3, it's kind of like, the world's already over, fuck it. But like, <laughs> da- like Dark Souls 2, it's like you reach the hub world, and there's a beautiful seashore with sun- with like a golden sunshine. Like there-, there feels in Dark Souls 2 like there's something to defend, and that there's a sense that there's something to lose still. Mm. And so I kind of like that approach to the world it resonates with me a little stronger than just the grim dark. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I might have reacted to that in the same way because like I, I've always associated dark souls with the kind of sort of stereotypical grim dark aesthetic. It's like everything is gray and stone and splattered in blood and that sort of thing. Whereas I played dark souls too. And as you say, you get to that hub world and you've got that lovely sort of golden sunset and so on. And that, when someone says dark souls too, that is the image I get in my mind of that scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted i haven't played much further than that scene so i don't have much else to relate to with dark souls but um yeah that that was sort of the most striking image that i took from the the few hours i have spent with dark souls to date one day i will play them properly but uh, as i say I've, I've never found quite the right time just yet well yeah i mean they're they're great games and i'm finding i'm getting more out of playing two because i'm playing it completely separated from any buzz around it yeah yeah. Um, I'm just enjoying it at my own pace, in my own way. Um, you know, I'm a loot guy, so like to me, I'll just when I play Dark Souls, I spend forever in the same area, just killing every guy and trying to collect every sword and fiddling with upgrades. And <laughs> and, and you know, I like that there's no one's shouting at me because I'm grinding and faffing around. Like I, I just have fun playing it at my own pace, and that's really the best way to play these games. Your yeah. way. Yeah, sounds good to me. All right, great stuff. Anything else you want to bring up? No, I think that's it for me. All right, that's it for me as well. So, okay, we're going to take another short break now, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about our main topic of the episode, which is game preservation. So, we'll be back in a moment. Talk to you then. Welcome back. So for our third segment today, I wanted to talk a little bit about game preservation and the various uh, things surrounding that. Uh, This is uh, partly inspired by the recent release of the Sega Mega Drive Classics uh, compilation for PlayStation 4, Xbox One and um, Steam. 
Um, so I've been spending a bit of time with that recently. It's a really nice collection. Uh, there's a couple of minor little flaws here and there, but for the most part, I mean, it performs really nicely. It's very customizable. Uh, it's got 50 great games in it, uh, including a bunch of treasure stuff that you don't see very often, which uh, makes Chris very excited. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it's a really nice compilation, and it's it, it just got got me thinking about uh, about game preservation and. Uh, why we might collect things and what's going to happen to things uh, uh, in in the future, basically, yeah, especially with some of the things that happen with modern consoles and so on. So, I, I think um, thinking specifically about uh, about this compilation that's come out, I find it quite interesting that the the Mega Drive or the the Genesis to you Americans out there um, is is the, the console that always seems to get this treatment more than any other i mean we know that nintendo have done things like the nes mini and the snes mini and so on and they've had virtual console and so on but it's always the mega drive that gets these retail releases of games um that uh the sort of the, the classics of the 90s and so on and it's uh I find it quite interesting that that's that's the console that always seems to get latched onto for this. To a lesser extent, there's the Atari 2600 gets a bit of that treatment as well. But uh, as I said in my in my rundown of, of this piece of software the other day, that uh, you can tell when a console generation has reached maturity because it will have a Mega Drive Classics compilation for it at some point. <laughs> yeah, so. every console. <laughs> I think a lot of it comes down, um, not necessarily in terms of the Genesis or the Mega Drive or whatever you want to call it, but... Um, it's Sega in general. Um, I think yeah. I think Sega as a company, and this is kind of something we touched upon a couple weeks ago when we had a discussion about Sega, more than any other big publisher out there, I think Sega has a specific connection with their past and preservation of their past that other people aren't interested in engaging with in the same way. Um, mm. It all kind of boils down to, you know, Sega backwards is ages, and they've, and they've always pushed that. Like, um, even I think back to the PS2, um, it wasn't something we got much in the West. We just got one compilation disc with many of them on it. But in yeah. the PS2 era in Japan, Sega had this huge Sega Ages collection, re yes. revisiting all their major properties, either remaking them in new, new modern 3D versions or simply porting them um, onto compilation disc. And, and this is all kinds of stuff. We're not just talking about Sonic the Hedgehog here. We're talking about there was a Wonder Boy disc in, in uh, Japan, uh, remakes of... Um, uh, you know, Fantasy Zone remakes of Space Harrier. I uh, just are there arcade stuff. Um, they've just always been interested in revamping and touching on their past in, in a way that doesn't always happen with other publishers. I, I don't know why it is, but it's just something they're interested in. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point to bring up because there are some publishers um, over here in the West, in particular, that certainly used to be interested in this sort of thing and they don't seem to be up for it anymore i'm thinking probably the most prominent example of that is activision mm -hmm. um, because if we think back to maybe sort of the ps2 era or so and and before that as well activision was big on preserving its past particularly things like its atari 2600 games and things like the adventure games it published um there were all sorts of activision compilations available uh, where you could you could get all their old games and you could revisit revisit them but that seems something that they're not at all interested in now um and i'm not entirely sure why that is because those games are still very well regarded especially among people who were sort of around for the first time um and there's also 
kind of a gap in the market for them as well because if we think about the Atari 2600 games in particular every time an Atari 2600 compilation comes out it's pretty much always the same games it's always always the first party Atari games for the most part and so those Activision games are kind of ripe to be re-exploited if you like so i mean there's like there's a there's a great psp version of them i think there's a ps2 version as well but since then i don't think they've done anything with those old properties and that's that's a bit sad really because activision certainly in the early days was a defining influence in video games um i mean they they basically sort of established formulas for a lot of different formats of games like scrolling shoot 'em ups and that kind of thing is stuff like river raid um they were noteworthy for having a lot of the first female designers in the business so, uh, going back to river raid again which is one of my favorite games so i'll bring that up quite a lot uh, that was designed by carol shaw that uh, did a lot with procedural generation and that sort of thing so from a historical perspective those games are fascinating but there's no real way of of getting them now uh, aside from getting one of these compilations on an old console or just investing in an old console in, and collecting them yeah, I mean that's it's a that's a gap in my knowledge for sure. Um, most of my knowledge in terms of game development history is is pretty much focused on the Japanese market. But I mean, you're you're 100 percent right about all those those old Atari games and stuff uh, from Activision. I remember very specifically picking up uh, a 2600 collection and, and being kind of disappointed that there weren't as many or any Activision titles on some of the ones yeah. I was looking for that I had from my 2600 growing up. Yeah, so I mean that's 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 one side of things. They there have been attempts to sort of bring some of those back. Like I don't know if you remember the Xbox Game Room service on the 360. I I read about it, but I don't have any personal first-hand experience with it. Yeah, Game Room was was actually really cool because it it gave you this sort of virtual arcade space to play in. It was it was very much driven by sort of. Uh, I'm not sure I want to say microtransactions because you, you were basically buying the games rather than. Um, rather than sort of paying for credits or that sort of thing. Although I think there was an option to pay for credits to play a certain game a certain number of times, although quite why anyone would do that is beyond me. But um, yeah, one of the interesting things about Game Room is it was one of those few places that did incorporate some of these old Activision games as well. Because Microsoft was completely sort of separate from the companies who normally put out these sort of compilations it wasn't just activision itself putting out the game room service it was microsoft licensing these games to be included in here that was actually one of the best retro game collections there was because it had it had contributions from all sorts of different sources including the ones that tend not to get a lot of uh, a lot of attention these days so it was uh, it was a bit sad when that shut down but uh, i guess it just wasn't uh, paying the bills as it were yeah yeah i wonder why i mean you could probably make some arguments into like the xbox install base and the with where their attentions lie versus other consoles install bases but mm. that would require a lot more research in order to make things that aren't sweeping generalizations so i, I won't <laughs> so i mean with regard to get to game preservation in general for me there's there's a lot of different things we need to think about so First of all, there's there's sort of the idea of of collecting things, and I know both both you and I we have substantial physical collections of our games. So, sure. Um, one thing that's that's kind of come to light for me um, over the past few years, in particular, and in the last couple of console generations, is uh, how much sort of value those discs have from a from a preservation perspective with the um, the current generation of consoles, in particular. 
Um, that's a bit of a concern for me, to be honest, because you get... Um, I, th I think probably we've talked about this before. Final Fantasy XV is probably one of the best examples of this. Because I've got a copy of that on my shelf. If I were to revisit that in, I don't know, 20 years' time on a PS4 that maybe wasn't necessarily the one I've got right now, um, that disc would probably be largely useless. Yeah, all that serves as is a code to tell Squaresoft that you own Final Fantasy XV so that their servers will let you download Final Fantasy XV at, at this point it, because the game is so far removed from anything that's on that disc. Yeah. That's, but that's one of the reasons why I don't play MMOs because they're not, yeah. they're not archivable. Yeah. So I don't well, play them. Although, I mean, the, the other end of that spectrum is, is because MMOs aren't archivable, maybe you should play them right now because you will never get the, the chance to do that again. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's true. Um, so, and I mean, and I mean, that's that—that that is something that I've thought about quite a bit, particularly with regard to things like Final Fantasy XI and Final Fantasy XIV. Um, both of those are going to end someday, and those are both mainline Final Fantasy titles. So, I, I, it will be a sad day when there are two important parts of the mainline Final Fantasy series that people just won't be able to experience anymore because they're offline. Oh, I'm I don't sorry. Know if, I, I I mixed up fourteen and fifteen. You were ah. you were talking about fifteen, and I was like, yes. I don't play fifteen because it's an MMO. No, <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm no. sorry. I'm sorry. You were talking about Noctis and the boy crew, not not yes. fourteen. I'm sorry. No, but 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 I mean, fifteen ha actually has a lot of the same issues that fourteen does in terms of preservation. Oh yeah, absolutely. Most of what I said still applies. Just <laughs> just I did I did <laughs> play fifteen. It's just not. I just don't want people out there thinking I think fifteen is an MMO. Yeah, I, I mean it's, it's weird, and I kind of wish they hadn't done it, but they they've kind of treated fifteen a bit like an MMO in terms of its content updates. Um, I have which... no doubt that one day there will be a complete fifteen disc. They just yes. they just actually have to finish fifteen, which <laughs> which is apparently <laughs> going to happen in twenty nineteen now. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, so, but I mean, up until that happens, you have you have no idea of whether or not you're 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 going to be able to preserve that game for the future, because at the minute you've got the option of getting the original version, which, uh, I mean, in it in its basic state on the disc, if you don't have an internet access or if PSN goes down or whatever, it is sort of playable. Mm -hmm. I've seen people who have deliberately downgraded their version of Final Fantasy XV to play the unpatched version, and it, it is sort of playable. Uh, and it's got some hilarious bugs in it as well that people have deliberately tried to seek out. So, I mean, I suppose there's a certain amount of value in preserving that experience, but in terms of the patched experience with all the additions they've made to it over the last couple of years or so, it's it, yeah, it's it's very difficult to know how best to handle that as, as a collector, as, as someone who wants to preserve that experience. Yeah, it's something I wrestle with quite a bit. Um, I've mentioned on previous episodes, but I'm just not a guy who deals well with DLC and patches and stuff because um, mm. this, you know, what we're talking about today is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. I, I'm a trained historian. It's what my it's what my uh, bachelor's degree is in is in history, and my master's degree is in popular culture with a specific focus on the exploration of historical popular culture and what it means for us. So it's like the idea of always having media artifacts available in a playable or interact in a state that we can interact with and enjoy it is really important to me um yeah 
I tend not to respect or engage with games that are heavy with DLC because I prefer my media artifacts to be complete self-contained things that can be archived for future generations. It's one of the reasons, as I mentioned earlier, I did not buy the Wii U version of Hyrule Warriors. Um, mm -hmm. And I handle most games that way. I'm just playing Dark Souls 2 now because I acquired a copy of Scholar of the First Sin, which is the complete with DLC version. If a game right. comes out and I see it's going to be DLC heavy, I don't buy that game. I wait two years. Um, the only reason I didn't do that with Final Fantasy 15 is because it's freaking Final Fantasy and I had to play yeah. it. But like yeah. I, I played Final Fantasy 15 through based on what was on the disc. I have not yeah. I have not engaged with any of the DLC or additional content. Even the additional content that's been patched in later that wasn't DLC. Like I haven't yeah. I haven't fired it back up to try like the all-terrain vehicle or the boat or like whatever the things they've added for free have been. Like yeah. to my, in my mind those things do not exist. They will exist yeah. when they've been pressed on a disc for me to buy. Yeah. No, I, I'm exactly the same. I mean, I, I covered Final Fantasy 15 shortly after it came out over on Mario Gamer, and that was the experience as it was at the time. So as you say, all that stuff was missing. So you could only play Noctis, you could only drive on the roads, there weren't boats, there weren't DLC. Yeah, there was none of that. So if I fired up Final Fantasy 15 now, I would have a very different experience to how what I did when I wrote about that game, which in some respects is quite interesting, and, and in some respects I quite want to do at some point, but... Uh, yeah, uh, the other side of things, it's it, w when you're trying to take a snapshot of popular culture and media at that point in time. I mean, where do you take that from? Mm -hmm. <laughs> if if it's going to constantly change like that, if it, if it's one creative work that is constantly changing, yeah, where where do you, where do you draw the line? Where do you take that snapshot from? It's 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 a difficult consideration. It's one that's come up in the last two console generations, really. Um, Xbox 360 and and PlayStation 3. I mean, they they had patches on things. I don't think any of them were anywhere near as drastic as what we get these days. Yeah. I mean, even that, even even this Mega Drive collection that I got uh, for PS4 before I could run it, there was a 1.2 gigabyte update. I think that added the multiplayer, uh, the, the, yeah. the online multiplayer. Yeah. 1.2 gigabyte update for a pack of Mega Drive games. Yeah, are, are the games on that even 1.2? gigabyte like is 50 genesis games one point you like the, yeah. what's pressed on the disc might not be that big yeah so i mean yeah i don't know anyway. i mean the ultimate nightmare is, is of course uh, as a tribute games fan right what happened back in the ps3 and xbox 360 with the scott pilgrim beat-em-up game oh yes yes this was one of the other points i was going to bring up is the fact that there are games that are now dead yeah as in completely dead like we're not talking like an mmo where you can grab the game disc and you can extract the files and you can hack it to play it offline or whatever no there are games that you just cannot get anymore because there is no means of downloading them aside from resorting to questionable means yeah Which, I mean... in this case it is fortunate that there are people out there who have supplied these questionable means for us to provide those games but yeah the fact that you can't you can't buy and download Scott Pilgrim, Afterburner Climax, uh, and any number of other games that have had this same treatment. Is yeah, it's a crying shame because the the ones that it happens to are, have been fantastic games as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a when my first PlayStation Three died, it died after Scott Pilgrim was taken off the store, the oh, PlayStation no. Store. Um, I, I was able to get it. 
but the hoops you have to go through to get it are crazy. Yeah. You have to go into your PlayStation account. You have to go into your downloads list, which is sorted historically, like by yeah. by date, and you have to find that thing. You can't go into the store and find it anymore. You actually have to scroll through your entire history of downloads, find it, and access it through there. Like le yeah. legally, you've paid for that product. Like they have to let you access it somehow. But yeah, yeah it, it took me like it, like you know an hour just to be able to download it again. Yeah. This this is one area that Steam does quite well with actually, um, because stuff that has been removed from Steam generally stays in your library, mm -hmm. so so that you can you can re-download it. And and Steam is quite easy to sort uh, in terms of um, you can sort it into categories or you can sort it alphabetically or by playtime or whatever. Um, so I, I'm thinking things like uh, things like the PC version of Blur. Uh, which is the racing game I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. A lot of the people who went on to work on the Sonic racing games uh, worked on. That was an amazing game, but for whatever reason, it got removed from Steam. Um, so, one, you can't buy it anymore. Um, as far as I know, the only way you can now buy a copy of Blur on PC is to get a hard copy of it, and good luck with that. Um, and uh, also, it means that you can't you can't make use of the multiplayer stuff. Yeah. Anyway, which... Um, but that game is still there. It is. It is still preserved digitally, um, which is a good thing to an extent. But what happens if Steam closes? I mean, yeah, it's unlikely yeah. to happen. But if Steam shuts down, what's going to happen to that copy of that game? Yeah, I mean, is it still, it, yeah. I mean, is it, is it going to be able to run if it's not connected to the Steam service? Because I know some Steam games make use of DRM to uh authenticate on the steam servers when you try and play them and they won't run offline at all others will just run and they will just make use of the steam overlay and that sort of thing and steam does have a backup feature but it's it's buried quite deep within menus and stuff and it's not entirely clear how it does things um this is one area that i i like gog.com in particular a lot more because uh, even if you're using the gog.com client galaxy uh every single thing you download from gog.com uh, you can get a DRM-free installer for. And that means that uh, at any point, all of the stuff you've bought on there, you can back up. You can burn it to a CD. You can make your own physical copies of them. In fact, I've done that a few times, guys. I'm just that sad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you've made nice cases for them and stuff, though, right? Don't you, like, put yeah. them up on your... Up yeah, your yeah, exactly. So, so like, I, I wanted stuff like uh, Trails in the Sky and Ease on my shelf. And there are no physical versions of that apart from the first Trails in the Sky game on PSP. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what, what, what am I to do? I'll make my own boxes. There we go. And GOG.com uh, provides you with the ability to do that, which is nice. So if I wanted to go and find, say, the Japanese box art for those games, I could do that or I could design my own boxes and so on. But the important thing is I've got some physical means of preserving that game. So if for whatever reason I'm no longer able to access my digital copies of them, they are preserved safely, which is something that I have started to feel increasingly strongly about as i've started to get older now what do you um, burn on that disc just like the installer that you download from gog yeah so so as i say the um gog.com you can download stuff through their client uh, which means that it'll, it'll sort of install it automatically like steam does uh, but there is an option in there to download a standalone installer which is just a single executable file that contains all of the game data you stick that on a cd run it it will ask you where you want to install it and it just extracts the game and puts it there there's no protection or anything like that the good, uh, so, old, the good old days yeah exactly so um so yeah uh, for, for preserving stuff that is 
for me probably the ideal solution in the minute obviously it's very easy for one person to buy a game from GOG.com and then share that executable file with people because there's no protection on it or anything like that not that i condone that of course um but you know that seems like the most consumer friendly way of doing that at the moment that 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 keeps collectors happy it gives people flexibility and it also covers themselves for the future as well is so i don't know if you remember a few years back when uh, gog went through something of a relaunch and as part of their relaunch they pulled this fucking stupid publicity stunt where they uh, claimed that the whole site was being shut down and that uh, no one would be able to access any of their games anymore do you remember that no no i can't say that i do my my <laughs> my experience with gog is pretty limited yeah, no, but yeah, this was a disastrous publicity stunt for them. I mean, in some respects, it got people talking about GOG, and when they came back with their new catalogue and so on, and they weren't just doing retro games anymore, yeah, everyone was like, oh, right, that's what you were doing. But at the time, people were furious, because this, this was really the first example that people had encountered of a pretty high-profile digital store apparently going down mm, and losing yeah. all of the things that people had paid money for um so yeah i mean the reaction to that is is kind of what scares me with with digital only games and stuff like that yeah. and it's it's why i like to make an effort to preserve things that uh are, are currently out there in the digital only format i mean um another good example is something like uh fate day night which has never got an official western release the um the fan translated version that is out there at the moment which is the most sort of commonly accepted canonical version if you like um that never got a physical release in japan either apart from on vita i think and that obviously had all the adults only content cut out from it so in many ways the digital fan translated english version of this is the definitive version of fate stay night and yet it is currently dependent on people continuing to host it so yeah of course i burned that to some discs because that is a genuine classic that i don't want to be lost yeah, yeah, I mean, it's crazy how much work we have to put into it and how much brain power we have to put into making <laughs> sure we have access to these things still, but I don't know. Maybe we think too much about it. You know, a long time ago, there was a discussion about this stuff in regards to, like, maybe games have always been meant to be transient. Um, you know, the end-user license agreement on games is that you don't technically own it. Yeah. You know, that that's always there was that huge debate around used games, whether or not used games are even technically legal because when you purchase a game, all you're really purchasing is the ability to use the license to use that software. Te mm. Technically, you don't actually own anything when you own a video game. You just own the license yeah. to use that software. Yeah. I I just think that's a bit of a sad cynical view to take though because there there is so much interesting stuff in gaming throughout the ages. I mean, not just from the sort of technological perspective, but there are there are stories that have been told in games that haven't had remakes. There are interesting mechanics that haven't been explored in other ways. There's all sorts of stuff. And oh yeah. Just the idea, the idea of these things being lost just because someone didn't feel the need to preserve them in some way is just a bit sad to me. And oh, I, it terrifies I, I me. Yeah, I, I, I think of the room I've got upstairs, which is full of Atari ST games and Atari 8-bit games, most of which still work perfectly well. Um. And then I look at things like the, the PS4 games in particular are my biggest concern uh, for the reasons we outlined before. And it's like, how many of those are going to be playable in a few years' time? Yeah, I mean, I do my best to keep on top of um, 
like limited run and um, special reserve and all those guys. But if I bought everything I wanted to buy from them, I wouldn't even be able to make my student loan payments. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I just, you know, I just had to pass yeah. on cosmic star heroin because I just didn't have 35 bucks to do it. And that, it, that hurt, yeah. that hurt because that was one I would have liked to have preserved. But sometimes you just, you can't. Yeah. And like the historian in me even drives my decision-making even like I've bought games off of limited run that I haven't even really wanted to play that much. Like mm -hmm. I, I bought a uh, bit trip presents runner two. And like, I, I own that on like three different platforms. I didn't really want to spend 30 bucks on it again, but I bought it just to preserve it because the historian me in me was like, you know, I like this game. I've played this game. I respect this game. I don't really yeah. want a physical PS4 version of this game. I've already played it enough on steam, but I bought it anyway because out of respect and the desire to preserve like yeah no I, I mean I, I'm exactly the same the reason I do so much console gaming these days rather than PC gaming despite having a PC that is more than up to running sort of the most demanded games at the moment is is purely for this reason it's because I, I, I see a game that I'm interested in I, I want to feel like I own it I want to have a copy of it on my shelf I want to be able to show it to people I want to be able to talk about it um, and if it's just in your Steam library, I mean, one, it runs the risk of being forgot completely because I've got so many things in my Steam library that have been in there for so long that I just don't look at anymore. I just don't even know they're there. I've gotten to the point um, with my Steam library where I've want, I've went to buy games and then I realized I had them all. <laughs> yes, yes, we've all been there. It's like, oh, I, I own that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just giving out, you know, like when I buy a humble bundle, like the extent to which I just have doubles to dole out to everybody at this point. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's difficult to know exactly what the solution is going to be at this point. And it's kind of sad to say that, that, that piracy is probably going to be a big part of this in the future. I emulate unapologetically. Yeah, exactly. I have it's every a, Neo Geo game ever. I run it in an emulator. Like, come at me, SNK. Like, what? Like, what? <laughs> like, like, what? I'm not. I can't go out there and spend four hundred dollars on the aftermarket to get a copy of Tengai Makyo. Like, yeah. I'm gonna emulate. And like, of course, I'm going to do what I can to also support official official stuff. Like, I'm gonna buy that Neo Geo Mini because it's got fifty games on it. But the fifty mm -hmm. games on it are just the SNK games. Yeah, Blazing Star isn't on it. Um, like I said, Tengai Makyo Chojin is not on it. Um, even important SNK games aren't on it. Uh, Turf Masters isn't on it. I can't imagine yeah. owning a Neo Geo collection that doesn't have Turf Masters. So, like, like I, I emulate because I want to be able to play those games. I want to be able to show friends of mine who aren't familiar with those games to those games. Yeah, definitely. You, you know, I want to continue to educate and share this hobby with people and sometimes i have to emulate to do that yeah and whatever the sort of legal questions over this I, I i think it's really good that there's this sort of community that is built up around this idea of of helping to preserve things so one thing i want to give a particular highlight to here is uh, is launchbox Oh, I love Launchbox. Yeah, yeah. Launchbox is a wonderful piece of software. If you've if you've never come across it, it is it's basically it's sort of like iTunes for your games. Really, you can import um, your ROM files and disk images and so on for pretty much any platform you care to mention, and probably plenty that you haven't thought of as well. You can link it to your various emulators, so you can use it as a launcher for them. Um, it's connected to the internet, so it will retrieve information on the games automatically for you. So it will give you things like a synopsis and wallpaper and background music and all sorts. 
Um, the full registered version of the software has a, um, a big box mode, a big screen mode that you can use for if you're building like a custom arcade cabinet or something like that. So there are people out there who are aware that this is probably how we're going to have to do things in the future for certain console generations or certain hard to find things. Um, it's just yeah there's there's the whole sort of slight slightly awkward feeling about it all it's like is it okay to be doing this yeah hey, you so know, anyway i don't i don't ever feel any moral compunction about doing it because i buy so much yeah, yeah it's like I, I don't know how else to justify it it's like okay so i I'm emulating Adventures of Dino Ricky on the NES because I can't find a copy at, at a price I'm willing to pay. Like, uh, what are you going to do? You know, we were talking about the Genesis collection that just came out, right? Um, yeah. You can now own Alien Soldier in the West. Tre Treasures Alien Soldier, one of the greatest side-scrollers ever made. Treasures Alien Soldier. Previously, copies of Alien Soldier, starting cart only, we're talking about around two hundred dollars. Dialed all yeah. the way from box only in condition, four to six hundred dollars. Like, yeah. was I ever gonna pay that? No, because the aftermarket's ridiculous. Yeah, Did, have I, I did, have I emulated Alien Soldier for ten years? Yes. Of course. Am I going to yeah. buy that Genesis collection now so I can officially legally own a copy of Alien Soldier? Of course I am, because it's a reasonable price. But like, yeah. there reaches a point where the intersection of the aftermarket, I cannot justify what it takes to pay for yeah. these games. I don't want to turn I mean, this into a huge emulation moral discussion, but from a, hist no, that's from a, a that's historical fine. perspective, you've got to do what you've got to do to have access yeah. to these titles. Yeah, and I mean, thinking about Shantae, which I'm covering this next month, um, yeah, a a cart only for that. The Game Boy Color game goes for like at least three hundred pounds, if you can find a copy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, for example, um, I'm playing it through on emulation now. I bought a copy of the 3DS Virtual Console version to kind of make myself feel a little bit better about it. Sure. But also, em but also, emulation has got. Uh, the added benefits of uh, making it easy to share the experience with people as well. So, for example, something like the 3DS or the DS or the Game Boy, something like that, is is very hard to do things like stream or record video from or even take screenshots from. Um, whereas if if you've got an emulated version, you you can you can do all those things. You can highlight these games in ways that we haven't been able to do in the past. So, like, I could take a video capture of Shantae right now and show someone exactly what it looks like, how it plays. And that sort of thing whereas sort of pre-internet or pre-widespread social media high-speed internet that sort of thing that would have been impossible to do and so people would have had to sort of take it on faith that this game was supposedly worth 300 pounds which totally isn't but you know it's a great game i'm not paying 300 quid for it <laughs> well it's one of those things where it's like you know emulation is kind of the elephant in the room that everyone knows exists but nobody really wants to give lip service to i'm not afraid to talk about it um mm -hmm. it, but you know okay youtube streamers right so there's loads of youtube streams i'll just keep on alien soldier right because it's pertinent right now there's a million yeah. youtube streams out there of people like doing perfect runs of alien soldier so you're telling me every streamer out there who is doing youtube streams of alien soldier has a two to four hundred dollar copy of the japanese <laughs> version of of uh alien soldier and they're all running that through in a genesis i'm assuming through a f uh, and the quality is great on other steams right so they're running it through a frame meister which is a 400 hundred yeah. dollar piece of upscaler 
<laughs> with a, with a, with a sixty dollar SCART cable into another hundred dollar recording device. Like you're telling me that these people who are playing Alien Soldier made that like nine hundred dollar investment to play this game. Like no, they didn't. They're running it on an emulator. Like, and it's yeah. right out there for the public to see. Yeah. Yeah, and I think. Um, the other side of things is that we we are at a point and have been for quite some time that emulation is now at such a such a, an advanced state that the the only real thing you're getting from playing on original hardware is the satisfaction of holding that original hardware in your hand. The actual experience of the game itself is so authentic on emulation these days that yeah you are getting that true game experience which you you didn't always used to get but certainly up to at least. PS1, N64, maybe PS2, you can have an authentic and in some cases superior experience with emulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, PS2 is still a little rough depending on your your build of your computer. But um, and I know GameCube is GameCube emulation is in a very good state right now. Um, yes, I don't remember the name of it, but there's that emulator that supposedly runs Wii U and GameCube stuff beautifully. I kind of yeah. draw the line with emulation at disc-based media for some reason. Like, yeah, I have PS2 and ps1 and saturn emulators but i never download or play roms i only actually play my disc games in the computer or or, or um make image files of my own disc games to play um yeah I, I, for some reason I, i'm comfortable emulating cartridge based stuff but i draw the line of disc based stuff yeah I'm, I'm kind of the same the the only exception to that is in the few cases uh in the ps1 era in particular where there was stuff that was uh, only released in the us that didn't come to europe sure. so there is an english version out there uh but just i have no means of acquiring it easily without spending hundreds of pounds on it yeah um so that yeah as as you say i i tend to pretty much draw the line at uh, cart based stuff so so i think the the latest stuff i have here is in my copy of launch box is um I've got, I've got a couple of N64 things in there, but it's it's mostly sort of 8 and 16-bit stuff. There is potentially an N64 Mini coming. Nintendo. The, the yes. news this week was that Nintendo registered N64 for whatever whatever they call it, TV game devices or whatever that like copyright like red red flag is. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting one, I think, because the, the, the N64 is is one that people seem to have fairly mixed feelings about, because there, there are some great games on it, by by all means, but as as a console platform, it's it's one that's... I mean, it's, it's hard to describe, really. It's, it's, people have very fond memories of stuff like Super Mario 64 and so on, but you, you don't have people who have quite the same amount of nostalgia for the N64 as they do for the PS1, in my experience, anyway. I just do for Mischief Makers. Pretty much everything else <laughs> on the N64 is kind of take it or leave it for me. And Mario 64, obviously. Most of the yeah. stuff on 64 that I really am in love with has already been preserved or re-released in other fashions. Yeah, that's true. If I play Mario 64 these days, I play it on the DS. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, I mean, that'll be another one for, for Nintendo to not make enough of and annoy everyone, so, you know. <laughs> this is how these things tend to go. Mm -hmm. All right, any further thoughts on this topic? No, I think that's it. I mean, I could talk about it for a long time. There's a million good collections out there, but I don't think we're mm. going to make any make any revelations that we haven't hit already. No, absolutely. So, like I say, this this new Sega Mega Drive Classics collection is a very good one. Uh, if you have got things like the uh, the one that um, 
uh, was available on 360 and PS3, it's still worth picking up because there, although there's a lot of overlap between the the libraries in the two collections, there's also enough unique stuff between the two that make it it worth having as well. Yes. Particularly as uh, as you're surely keen to highlight the the treasure stuff but there's there's a few other bits and bobs in there as well things like uh, the wonder boy games we haven't seen on these compilations yes, before i don't yes, think yes, so, yes. um so yeah it's really nice to see those it's nice to see a, a slightly different mix of games as usual it's sad that we haven't got sonic 3 there but to be honest there's enough other ways of playing sonic 3 these days that i don't really miss it all that much because i've got at least three copies of sonic 3 on various discs around my shelves already so um yeah, so while it's a bummer, it's not on this collection. It's, it's not as if there is no way of playing Sonic 3 these days. All right, so that's another episode done and dusted. Um, so do you want to tell people where to find you on the internet, Chris? Uh, sure. Uh, you can check me out on my website. It's uh, MrGilderPixels.com, M-R-G-I-L-D-E-R-P-I-X-E-L-S.com, or on Instagram or Tumblr as MrGilderPixels, where I share uh, a lot of work in progress, artwork and stuff. Marvellous. And you can find me at moegamer.net, as always. Uh, at the time of recording, I've just finished covering Galgun 2 for uh, the cover game for May. And as I've said a couple of times previously in this episode, next we're moving on to the Shantae series. So we're going to be looking at a whole thing from the Game Boy Color original right up until the recent Ultimate Edition release of Half Genie Hero. So that should be a really interesting series to take a look at. So thanks very much for listening, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can watch a video version of it over on YouTube. Be sure to check out moegamer.net for new articles on Japanese and Japanese-inspired video games, new and old, every weekday. Every month, Moegamer features an in-depth exploration of an individual game or series as its cover game, so be sure to check the archives to see if your favourite has had a deep dive yet. If you'd like to support the site directly, please consider becoming a patron or buying me a coffee. You can find links to do both over on moegamer.net. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.